0: Dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, as we get deeper into twenty twenty two, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help, you can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey tell us where it is you want to help, we'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Join the union.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Perlroth, author of the book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. In addition to her book, Nicole is an award-winning cybersecurity journalist for the New York Times, where her work has been optioned for both film and television. Before joining the Times, she was deputy editor at Forbes, where she covered venture capital and web startups. Plus, she's a regular lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a graduate of Princeton and Stanford University, which makes guys like me and Rob, who are state school MOOCs, feel just about where we probably should be. So Nicole, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me read. (laughs) So, you know,
0: I want to talk about the article that you and David Sanger had in the Times earlier this week, because it pretty much lays out everything we've seen in the last few months. But first, I want to talk about the book. This is how they tell me the world ends. This book scared the hell out of me. And I hope that's what you were trying to do, because it worked. Um, In fact, Rob told me before the show that there was at least one bookstore that put it in the wrong place to put it in the horror section. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, what, depending on your definition of horror, I think it certainly belongs in. But you've been working for the Times in this regard for a number of years. Talk to us about how you decided to finally put this book together. Was there anything about this sort of cyber security, cyber crime, cyber warfare world that you didn't know from your, you know, day in, day out reporting that you learned as you went through this book?
1: You know, it's almost like an honor when it appears in the horror section because it really is the best example of the truth is stranger than fiction, this underground market. And, you know, from my perch at the New York Times, things were just getting worse and worse and worse. And there was this fundamental misunderstanding that government was going to save us from a major cyber attack. And I knew that that wasn't true because I could see. You know, we were actually hacked at the New York Times by China, and I had the privilege of embedding a bit with our security team and with some of the incident responders we hired from Mandiant to come clean out our systems. And I remember what happened the day the FBI came and they asked us, you know, a series of questions and we tried to answer all of the questions and then they closed their binders and they said, thank you very much. And we never heard from them again. And that's the story of cybersecurity. You know, we've really left all companies and organizations sort of fend for themselves because we've resisted any kind of legislation that would give government greater say over what our cyber defenses look like, or even any bill that has mandated that we have a higher bar for cybersecurity has been killed. So in the absence of anything, every company has been left to fend for themselves. And I could see at my position at the New York Times that the situation was getting pretty hairy. You know, every country that had any reason to do the U.S. harm was finding that they could never meet us militarily, they could never match our military budgets, but we had this huge soft underbelly in cybersecurity. So we were seeing North Korea, you know, basically decimate Sony's servers because they were upset with that James Franco, Seth Rogen film. We were seeing Iran do the same to Sands Casino because they were upset with something Sheldon Adelson had said. We were seeing China cart off our intellectual property, and then we were seeing this sort of very harrowing through line of Russian attacks that really culminated to some level with the 2016 election interference the power grid attacks. We caught them with their hands on our switches. I broke the story of them breaching the Wolf Creek nuclear plant and then taking out the lights in Ukraine and then picking up ransomware. And we all know what came next. So I wanted to ask this really basic question, which is what is government doing in this regard and what are businesses doing in this regard? And what I found was that they weren't doing much, you know, businesses, See no ROI on security. Security is a cost, it's not a profit center. So they really were just sort of crossing their fingers and praying that they wouldn't be the next one to get hit. But then what was really fascinating to me was this moral hazard that was playing out inside government, where when they would find a vulnerability in a major commercial technology like Microsoft Windows, their gut instinct wasn't let's patch this, get it fixed. It was let's hold on to this thing and see how we can use it. And we had good reason for that because, as the whole world was moving all of its most critical data and thoughts online, you know there was a huge intelligence opportunity there. But at the same time, we were all starting to use the same technology. We were all using Microsoft Windows whether you know it or not, you might not have a Windows PC, but it's in the power grid or your water treatment facility. We're all using iPhones and Android. So when U.S. government entities decide to leave a hole open, they weren't just leaving it open for Iran or Russia or China. They were leaving it open for Americans too. And you could start to see this sort of drumbeat of attacks coming from new corners of the globe, more sophisticated attacks from our adversaries they were also hunting for these holes and exploiting them on Americans and so that was the piece of it that i always found fascinating like wait a minute we pay taxpayer dollars to government to keep us safe but when it comes to cybersecurity the decisions are actually keeping us less safe and we're making this big trade off of cybersecurity in the name of national security without realizing that these things are now one and the same And what I learned in the process of writing the book was that all of these imaginative ideas I had about how this market actually worked, (laughs) you know, government representatives, government brokers meeting with hackers in dark alleys or at hacker conferences, like it was all true. (laughs) So, you know, if I learned anything, it was just that like the anecdotes and the stories and the characters in this world really are stranger than fiction. And, you know, that was probably the most eye-opening part of this project.
0: Well, I know personally that I think it was during the Obama administration when was it China hacked the Office of Personnel Management and made off with like hundreds of thousands of people's SF-86 security forms. I'm sure that mine is sitting somewhere in a server in Beijing at this point. I was like 23, so it's probably not very interesting to them, but it's interesting to know that like, you're sitting in someone else's server, and if they ever wanted to take a look at you, they could. Let me ask you about the idea of government and cybersecurity. I remember back in, was it like 2005 or 2006, Frontline did a story on the NSA putting some deal in the at and pipes in San Francisco so they could look at all the traffic going by. Now, that's obviously surveillance. It was the height of the war on terror. So it basically is like, it's good enough for me, but not for thee. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, you know, there's an acronym for this, and it's called NOBUS. It stands for Nobody But Us. And it came out of the NSA, and the idea was only we have the capabilities and the resources to do this kind of surveillance at scale. And, you know, in some ways that played out with AT&T, but in that case it was a little different in the NSA through the FISA courts, basically forced AT&T to put this backdoor on its systems. Although, you know, all the reporting suggested that AT&T went a little bit above and beyond in complying with that order. But what I was researching was sort of where the companies were not complicit in the way AT&T was, but that the companies were basically getting hacked by their own government, being used as a conduit for surveillance, in Iran, in Russia, in China, North Korea, on and on, but also increasingly for battlefield preparations, you know, as everyone was baking this software into their power grids, into their missile launch systems, you know, the NSA and other intelligence agencies and Cyber Command were realizing that there was real battlefield potential, real destructive potential of finding holes, not just to spy on these systems, but to potentially drop a payload that could disrupt them or destroy them. And for a long time, nobody but us could do that. You know, for a long time, we were the first mover in this game. We pulled off that attack with Israel on Iran's nuclear facility, Natanz. That was just a bloody masterpiece. The problem is it got out and it showed the world the destructive potential of code. Well, and, you know,
0: I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about corporate executives in the C-suites seeing cybersecurity as a cost center as someone who has done a lot of corporate PR in his career, I remember I was driving with a corporate executive once during a crisis they were having, and he said, why don't we have more guys like you around? And I said, well, we're a cost center. We don't make you money. Secondly, we typically only show up when there's a problem. And third, we tell you you're going to have to do something you don't want to do, and it's probably going to cost you money. So like PR, HR, HR, And now cybersecurity are all lumped into like people I don't want to hear from because if I see them coming, it means something bad has happened.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way, but that's exactly right. And, you know, there was this phrase that's just been plagiarized by so many senior government officials. But I think the first person who said it was Dmitri Alperovitch from CrowdStrike, who said, a decade ago, there's only two types of companies left in the United States anymore: companies that have been hacked and companies that don't know they've been hacked yet. And we saw Jim Comey and Keith Alexander sort of borrow variations of that phrases, but it's true. And you know, right now, we're seeing that in real time with the ransomware attacks. It's just that in some ways, ransomware is a blessing in disguise, because for years, American companies have had the luxury of being able to bury. These breaches bury Chinese IP theft because clearly the hackers didn't want it known that they were out there stealing this intellectual property. And the victims didn't want it known because they were worried they would get a scarlet letter on their forehead or what it would do to their stock price or class action lawsuits. With ransomware, there's no burying it. You know, when your systems get held hostage or you have some Russian group out there dumping. Your internal strategy and documents onto their happy blog is I think what this criminal group calls it. It's really hard to bury that. And so what you're just seeing right now is just this like visual edge of this vast ocean of cyber threats that we've been covering for the last decade. And it makes it really hard to ignore. So the
0: other day I watched Sneakers, which is a 1992 movie starring Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and a great cast. Ben Kingsley is a terrific bad guy. 1992 where like a mathematician had invented a black box that could crack anyone's code. And at the end of the movie, Ben Kingsley says, don't you understand? It's all about the information now. It's not about guns. It's not about bullets. It's not about money. It's who is able to see what they want to see when they want to see it. And the whole conceit of the movie is that, you know, people are willing, you know, whether or not it's the Russians, bad guys, the U.S. government itself is willing to kill for this thing because they believe it's so powerful. I mean, that was nearly 30 years ago. And so this isn't like a new problem as much as it might now be coming to the consciousness of the country writ large.
1: Yeah, I love that movie. It's the best. It's way better than Hackers with Angelina Jolie, by the way, although uh, (laughs) some people would fight me for that. No, it's so good. And, you know, it was true at that moment, 1992 or whatever, you know, early 90s is really when... U.S. government intelligence agencies, but also law enforcement agencies came to this realization that they needed as much data and information as possible, that data was the new oil. And that is when, in my book research, I learned, you know, the Pentagon started working with these boutique contractors around the Beltway who would send these middlemen, usually Israelis for some reason, over to Eastern Europe to... Procure what are called zero days, holes in code, from these Eastern European hackers, bring them back to the beltway, weaponize them, and then sell them to the US government. They're paying teenagers, giving them a duffel bag of cash worth $150,000 for a flaw in Microsoft Windows or Microsoft Internet Explorer. You know, that was the going rate at the time. Now it's millions of dollars, and the mother load is really an exploit, a zero day exploit for your iPhone that involves, you know, me basically finding a flaw in your iPhone software, or your iOS software, writing a program to exploit it, you not having to do anything as my target. But by using that vulnerability in that code, I can read your text messages or track your location or record your calls or turn on your camera without you knowing about it. And really what else would a spy agency want or need? And so the going rate right now for that exploit is now 3 million dollars. Only the top payers are no longer in the United States. They're in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. We're actually getting outbid for these things. The going rate in the United States for that same capability is 2.5 million dollars. So it's whoever has the biggest pockets now, you know, wins the information war. So can you talk a
0: little bit about what a zero day is because I know there's a documentary about this. It seems to be the thing. It is the exploit to take advantage of in a piece of code. Can you just explain to the listeners what a zero day is?
1: A zero day is a hole in the code. Think of it as like a bug in the code. It could be an error in the code, a mistake by the programmer who was writing this code. And if I'm a hacker and I find that error, let's say Apple doesn't know about, let's make it easy. Let's say, you know, I'm looking at some code used in your iOS, iPhone software and Apple doesn't know about that error. That's called a zero day. And if I'm a hacker and I can write a program to exploit that zero day, to sort of use it and issue commands to break inside your iPhone itself and read your text messages or record your phone calls or track your location, that's called a zero day exploit. And until Apple finds out about that bug, I can use that zero-day exploit to basically mine your entire life these days because really your iPhone is like a digital ankle bracelet right now. So long as I don't tell Apple about it, I have this sort of magical capability, this sort of invisibility. And so there is a lucrative market out there for zero-day exploits right now. You know, I already mentioned some of the contractors around the Beltway that actively advertise on their websites that they'll pay hackers $2.5 million, You know, whatever million dollars for that kind of capability in your iPhone, maybe a little bit more for your Android phone these days. They'll pay a very high price for a Windows zero day exploit. And the caveat is if you sell that zero day exploit to those brokers, the caveat is you can never talk about it because the minute Apple finds out about it, they'll patch it. They'll roll out a software update. You'll get one of those annoying prompts on your iPhone to update your software. And suddenly that $2, $3 million investment that some government agency just made turns to dust as everyone patches their systems. But in that timeframe where it's still open, you know, they can use it for an incredible amount of surveillance. And then the other thing is, you know, we've seen this sort of demand for 0D exploits, not just in communications technology. Not just in your iPhone or Android, but in industrial technology, in Schneider Electric and Siemens industrial software, the software that makes its way into nuclear plants, nuclear weapons, power systems, railways, transportation. And there's a market for that too. There are governments willing to pay hackers who can find zero days in that industrial technology, not to spy on those systems, but to potentially cause a lot of harm.
0: So let me ask you this. Now, I'm taking a leap of not well thought out logic. But what you're talking about vis-a-vis our ability or willingness to address this issue sounds a lot like our inability or unwillingness to address infrastructure. Sounds a lot like our inability or unwillingness to address COVID last year. That the biggest things that we're relying on our government for there's really, eh, costs a lot of money, going to make some people mad. Uh, no political will here.
1: Yeah, it's exactly like that. And, you know, some of the research that came out during COVID that really applied to cybersecurity were, was some of the research that showed that based on your national concept of exceptionalism, you know, how exceptional you thought you were as a nation, the higher your chances that you were going to have a pretty high death rate with COVID. And we saw that play out here in the United States. We saw it in Brazil. And, you know, the same is true for cybersecurity. You know, we have for a long time believed that nobody but us had these capabilities to use technology for surveillance, espionage, and now destruction. And that's just not the case anymore. And in fact, we are arguably more vulnerable than a lot of our adversaries because, unlike North Korea, or Iran, we are so digitized. We've digitized every last piece of our critical infrastructure. And all of that digitization and complexity lends itself to very destructive cyber attacks. And what you're seeing right now with ransomware is really just the beginning of that destructive chapter of cyber attacks. You know, ransomware is done by cyber criminals who are looking for a profit. But at some point, you know, these ransomware, and we've seen this by Russia on Ukraine, nation states will use ransomware as a destructive weapon, you know, not to make money, but to literally wipe systems out. And the more connected you are, the worse the damage will be. So when I went to Ukraine to talk to them in the wake of what was really the most destructive cyber attack we've ever seen, what they said to me was, you know, we're still recovering. This was bad. But We believe that we're just spring training and we think you're the end target. Only when it comes your way, it'll be a lot worse because you are so virtualized.
0: So let me ask you that, because now, you know, I want to turn to your recent article of earlier this week with David Sanger, which, as I said, really looped together a lot of the things we've seen this year so far. You know, there's an attempted hack of the Republican National Committee. The colonial pipeline is shut down by, again, a Russian-based organization, as I understand it. President Joe Biden goes to Switzerland to meet with Vladimir Putin and be like, hey, nice pipelines he got there. Be a shame if something bad happened to it. But now what you're talking about is not the idea that someone is stealing secrets for financial gain, although they're doing that. Someone is not surveilling them for intelligence purposes or potentially blackmail purposes or whatever the case might be. But now they are taking digital tools to wreak havoc in the analog world. So talk to me a little bit about what you've seen this year. I mean, given the fact that Vladimir Putin runs Russia, near as I can tell, with an iron fist, it's hard for me to believe that a hacker group out of St. Petersburg does something like this without at least a tacit okay from the Kremlin. So talk to me about where we are in 2021 as we're looking at these things, because now they're becoming weekly news. It's not every quarter it's not every year it's not 2015 and 2016 with the dnc being hacked what's creating this increase in these activities
1: you're right and the truth is that i can't even cover all of them you know there was a major ransomware attack at the villages hospital you know the hospital that serves the villages nation's largest retirement community i didn't even cover it because i was so busy covering the ransomware attacks that were taking meat processing plants offline and the blast radius from the colonial pipeline attack and on and on and on. We just can't cover all of them anymore. And I think you're right. I think for sure these attacks are Russia enabled, right? Because they'll never extradite their cyber criminals. The only time we catch them is when they get greedy and, you know, take a vacation to the Maldives and then we might pick them up. But, you know, they definitely enjoy safe harbor in Russia and Russia treats them as a national asset. You know, as I say in the book, Putin has only two rules for Russia's hackers. The first is don't hack inside the motherland. And we see that in the code every time. First thing they do is search your computer for its default language setting. And if it's Russian, they move right along. And the second rule is, you know, when we call in a favor, you do whatever we ask. And we saw that with the Yahoo breach a couple of years ago when they finally handed down the indictments. It basically came down to four guys. Two of them were FSB. And two of them were cyber criminals. And the FSB let the cyber criminals do their thing, steal passwords and email account credentials and sell it on the dark web. But if they came across someone who they could cross match to someone who worked at the White House or was in the Foreign Service or in the military, they were expected to pass that on to the FSB. And that's sort of how it works. You know, they give the FSB and Russia state cover for some of their more sensitive operations. And then Putin gets to say, Like you said, a couple of years ago, he said, hackers are like artists. They just get up in the morning in a good mood and start painting. I have nothing to do with what they do or don't do. So they really give Russia a layer of plausible deniability that we don't have here. Now, here we are in 2021, and they're basically taking out our major gas pipelines, right? It's important to caveat that with, they didn't actually go for the pipeline itself. They took out You know, the back end business network at Colonial Pipeline and they took out their billing systems, which forced Colonial Pipeline to then shut down the pipeline because with their billing systems frozen, they couldn't charge customers downstream. But the downstream effect was the same as if Russia proper came and held up one of our major pipelines. You know, people were panic buying. We got our hands on this classified DOE assessment that said we could have only afforded, as a country, another two days of downtime before mass transit and chemical refineries ground to a halt that's how vulnerable we are so you can very much imagine a situation where you know these groups are not just russia enabled they are russia encouraged or potentially even directed i'm not saying that's what's happening right now but certainly like you said putin rules russia with an iron fist he has the ability to go to these cyber criminals and say cut it out And he's not doing that. And in fact, ever since the Geneva summit, we've only seen these attacks pick up and get more sophisticated and more serious, which is what we just saw over the July 4th weekend. Now, I think Putin's testing us. I think, you know, Biden has laid down a few red lines. He's done a good job saying, I'm putting you on notice that if you come for our elections, there will be consequences. He laid down another red line at the summit in Geneva where he handed Putin a list of the sixteen sectors that we deem critical and said if you hit or a Russian cyber criminal hits one of these sectors, you can expect a response. Well, you know, here we are going into Fourth of July weekend. And what do they do? They hit a major American tech company that has thousands, potentially millions of customers downstream with a zero day, using a zero day, you know, in an attack that would have been really hard to defend against and you know fortunately and i don't think this was by any kind of calculation on the part of the cyber criminals but fortunately we haven't seen a huge impact downstream on american companies from that attack but in sweden you know it hit a grocery retailer that had to take all 800 of its stores offline it hit a pharmacy it hit swedish railways you know and you could see that that could just as easily have happened here and so the question now is
0: what do we do Let's say that President Biden was like, "All right, I told Vlad not to do it. He didn't listen." Fort Meade, go to work. Fort Meade is the home of the National Security Agency. Is there a chance that like the Russians wouldn't even admit it if it happened anyway?
1: They probably would not admit it, but they would probably respond either directly or by outsourcing some kind of response to Russia's cyber criminals. So, the most frustrating thing when it comes to these attacks is whenever it comes down to it when, whenever we really are at a place where we have to respond we've always chosen the low-level diplomatic penalty and the reason why is because we are so vulnerable our systems are so vulnerable that unfortunately the thought that keeps crossing officials heads is but what will vlad do what will putin do back And so we don't want to risk the cycle of cyber escalation because, like I just said, we're so vulnerable. We're so digitized that we worry that if we, you know, take the lights out in Russia, they can just turn around and do the same thing. And in fact, they're in our power systems. They're in our utility companies. That is entirely possible. So, you know, these are the things that we worry about. Now, it has gotten to a point where we just laid down this red marker and we do need to respond. So, you know, there is this working group at the State Department that's coming up with this menu of responses and consequences.
0: So we'll see those by the time I have grandchildren then?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Working group at the State Department is not what I'd call a high speed organization. I
1: know. I know. And so, you know, I'll give you one example. So ahead of the 2020 election, there was a lot of concern around ransomware that a Russian ransomware group would come and hold up the Secretary of State's offices or hold up, you know, the voter rolls or the check-in systems where they could basically disenfranchise people by holding these systems hostage, right? So Cyber Command at the Pentagon landed this one-two punch on this major conduit for ransomware called TrickBot they took its systems offline. It's pretty technical, but they basically hacked into their command and control servers and sent them into this never-ending dial feedback loop where they couldn't receive any instructions because if you tried to send them instructions, you basically got the equivalent of a busy signal. So we did that a couple of times. And then Microsoft actually followed it up in court by being able to go and basically take a lot of their command and control servers offline through the courts by serving notice to these hosting companies. So we actually did a pretty good job of dismantling TrickBot. Well, what happened next was TrickBot regrouped. We actually saw some of their internal chatter that we reported at the New York Times where it was clear that they were in disarray. So what did they do? They said, let's get their hospitals. And they started passing around this list of 400 hospitals in the United States that they plan to hit with ransomware. And that is what they have done. Since the election, since that TrickBot takedown, they have come for one hospital in the United States after the next. They've come for hospitals in other countries too, like Ireland. But they've taken these hospitals offline. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, you could still see a doctor. You don't really need like back-end business networks to be able to go to the hospital and see a doctor. Unfortunately, that's not true anymore because they need to reference your patient record. They need to make sure you don't have allergies, that kind of thing. So urgent care centers have been shut down. I interviewed nurses at a cancer unit at the University of Vermont Medical Center when they were held up with Russian ransomware, and the nurses said to me, this is the worst thing we have seen. The only thing worse I've seen was working the burn unit after the Boston Marathon bombing. Like, we are not able to treat cancer patients because the whole protocol... Right.
0: is got to be perfect.
1: Right. And it's been wiped out. So these are, you know, bordering on terrorist attacks. Although we're really scared of using that language, because when you start talking about these hospital attacks and the attack on Colonial Pipeline as a terrorist attack, that means that we're going to have to respond. And then it gets back to this question of how do you respond in cyber when you yourself are so vulnerable? You yourself live in the glassiest of glass houses.
0: Well, there's been a theme running through the show for the last few weeks, and for whatever reason, it keeps coming up, which is, whenever you try and do the least possible thing to avoid the worst possible thing, you get the worst possible thing. I had a guest last week who, you know, one of her favorite expressions is from Winston Churchill, right? You wanted to avoid war to avoid shame. You have encountered shame, and now you'll have war. I totally mangled that quote, but you understand my point, (laughs) which is I'm trying to avoid something that I don't know might be that bad, so I'm going to continue to take these little steps backward. The problem is, as we know with whether or not it's bullies, terrorists, authoritarians, they will take whatever you'll give them. And they'll take, and they'll take, and they'll take. And before you know it, they're going to be like, they're never going to do anything. Take all the hospitals offline. Now, it's easy for me to say that sitting in my office, right? I don't have to make these decisions because they will be life and death decisions. But it does not seem to take into account enough of what you're talking about, which is a cancer patient in Vermont who cannot get the correct protocol because the computer system that's either supposed to deliver it or store it is no longer online. It could have devastating effects for that person's you know, well-being, for their treatment, and you multiply that by 10,000, 100,000, and before you know it, you've got a health epidemic or crisis on your hands as well.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. and people ask me this all the time, like, why can't we just shut off the lights? Why can't we just take them out? And unfortunately, what they don't understand is that for the last decade, I've been covering these attacks one by one. And it was really only in the book that I was able to piece together the through line. But unfortunately, the through line is that Russia and China are inside our grid as we speak. And, you know, we are inside theirs during the Trump administration. you know, My colleague David Sanger and I broke the story that Cyber Command was hacking into the Russian grid and making a really loud show of it. And when we called the National Security Council to say we're about to publish this story, we thought we were in for this very long, painful conversation. And instead they said, go ahead. We want Russia to know that we're in their grid. We want them to know that this is our version of mutually assured digital destruction. So you know, maybe we won't get to that point, but we're worried about what happens before you take out the lights. And some of the suggestions that I actually think are much more worthwhile and potentially less escalatory, although who knows what that means with someone like Putin, is leak his financials. You know, make clear just how corrupt, you know, the Russian state has been. And then you don't just have one Navalny, you have thousands of Navalny's.
0: And on steroids, no
1: less. Right. Right. And we, we have seen over the last year that Navalny is Putin's biggest fear, you know, so play into his biggest fear. And I don't know what they would do back. But at this point, we're seeing ransomware five times a day. And it's having really visceral effects and the option of doing nothing or just continuing along with these sort of like expelling diplomats and sanctions and indictments. It's not working.
0: Right. And so just for our listeners, Alexander Navalny is a pro-democracy activist in Russia. He was literally on an airplane to Siberia when someone poisoned him, I believe, on the airplane. He almost died. The Germans flew him to Germany to recover. Navalny goes back to Russia and they immediately throw him in jail. In the meantime, he puts out a, I believe it was a movie called Putin's Mansion or something like that, that documents this crazy, ridiculous house that Vladimir Putin's had built for himself. And of course, Putin goes crazy. Now he's in prison. You know, he's on death's door yet again because they're treating him so badly. So it gives you a sense of how sensitive he is as an individual to this kind of thing. But doesn't that say that in a world that so many of us, myself probably at the top of the list, so rarely understand, isn't this sort of purpose built for the kind of asymmetric warfare that could provide the kind of response that we want from him, which is we don't need to turn out your lights. We're going to make sure everybody knows you have $800 billion in Russian gold sitting in Switzerland. That's going to be a lot more damaging to him than turning off the lights in Novosibirsk.
1: I agree. And, you know, we've seen this with China too. When China hacked the New York Times, they hacked us for a very specific reason, which was that my colleague David Barbosa had just published this fantastic piece of investigative reporting that had investigated the financials of China's ruling party at the time. And he did it piecing together public documents in China. But, you know, the Chinese suspected that there was some sort of deep throat source. And that's why they hacked the New York Times, That why they took all of that effort to try and figure it out. Now, you know, again, it was all public, but that demonstrated the lengths of the paranoia and the fear of those details getting out that China was willing to go to those ends to track down whoever was responsible. And, you know, eventually we had to pull David out of China. But, you know, that is their Achilles heel. And we know that. And so I think that is probably our best option when we talk about responses to some of these attacks. Now it's interesting, like, you know, the other thing with China is honor. And so one of the things that actually worked for a little while was we told she. When you come to the White House for the first time to meet with Obama, we will be greeting you with sanctions and indictments over the hack of the Office of Personnel Management and also, you know, all the other IP theft you've been doing, unless we can come to some agreement that you will cut it out on the Chinese IP theft. And that is the deal that they made. And it actually did stick for a period of about 18 months until Trump came in and turned over the tables with the trade war. Now, some cynics will say, "Well, he didn't actually stop; he just used that time to reorganize China's cyber operations," and that's also true.
0: Right. Two things can be true simultaneously. Sometimes we forget that nowadays. So let me turn to something that we spend all day, every day on, which is American elections. We think about political campaigns, we think about the candidates, we think about the macro themes, but the truth is, is that every county in this country. Two thousand plus of them have their own elections system. Maybe they're all you know they're tied together at the state level or the state capitol, and they they filter up to a state elections board or a secretary of state's office. But my guess is is that if you're sitting in Utah County in Provo, Utah, you are probably not prepared for Fancy Bear to come for you and really disrupt what you do as a good citizen trying to do their best on the elections front. So. I mean, first of all, we've seen since 2015, 2016, maybe even before, you might know more, of direct provocation into American elections. But have we seen any of this at the actual logistical, mechanical level, as you talked about, where voting rolls, voter registration data, the ability to register online like you can in California and some other states, when elections or poll workers are printing out names of voters who are going to come to the ballots or when you're printing out absentee ballots? What, if anything, can we do to ensure that the Russians or their analogs aren't getting in that stuff? I mean, it seems like if Microsoft can't figure it out, how's a poor county elections official going to figure it out?
1: You know, there's this fallacy that because our election systems are such a tangled web and so decentralized that somehow that will save us from Russia shifting an election, you know, picking a winner. And that's actually not true. And we actually just saw this in 2020. They wouldn't actually have to hack the whole country. They would just have to hack these, you know, crucial municipalities in these swing states like Fulton County or Philadelphia, et cetera, and they can change an election. And so what can we do? Well, you know, we did have people who were <laughs> under cover of darkness at CISA, the Department of Homeland Security under Chris Krebs working on this, where, you know, they did the right thing in getting officials to print out their voter rolls ahead of time and to really check them ahead of time. And that's a big step forward. And actually, you know, when I've talked to Chris Krebs about this, they would go out to these local counties in the middle of the country that didn't understand the threat from Russia or China. You know, if you brought up Russia, it was like, can't hear you, can't hear you, hoax, hoax, hoax. So they pivoted to messaging about ransomware. And they said, have you heard of ransomware? And these guys said, oh yeah, you know, the guy in the county over there, I, you know, this guy that my friend's business was just held up with ransomware. And they said, okay, you could be locked up with ransomware where no one could vote because the whole system's locked up with ransomware. So you want to be able to print out, you know, your voter rolls ahead of time so you can do it manually. And they understood that. And they were able to make quite a bit of progress that way. Now, what else do we have to do? Like, you kind of have to pick your battles when it comes to elections, <laughs> because I could write a whole book about you know, the resistance among county and state election officials to any kind of assistance, even if it's cybersecurity assistance. So I think some of the most important things we can do are print out your voter rolls and then risk-limiting audits. You know do a scan of a you know, small percentage of ballots cast check with the voter themselves to make sure yes that's how they voted and if all is perfect then you have no problem probably and if one or two are off then you have a big problem and then the nightmare scenario is the one i flicked at earlier where you know checking voters into the rolls. you know if russia can get into our voter rolls which we've seen them do you know in 2016 they actually got into the voter rolls in illinois and arizona we know they scanned through a number of states registration systems But they stopped short of manipulating the data. But you could definitely see a scenario, and I don't think it would be hard, where they would go in and they would mark registered voters as unregistered or delete them from the roll or change their precinct. And then you have the perfect storm with some of the latest GOP laws around, you know, making it mandatory that people vote in the right precinct. So if they can muck around with it just enough so that when you show up at the poll and you're not even allowed to vote, Or suddenly there are these long lines because something's not working and people just leave out of their own volition because they don't have five hours to vote, then you've pulled off digital disenfranchisement. And if you've done that in one of these crucial counties in a swing state, you could really shift an election.
0: You're right. Rick Wilson, one of my partners, says this. These are games of small numbers. You don't need to change every vote. You just need to change enough votes or keep enough of the people you don't want voting from participating.
1: Right. And so, you know, in 2020, we didn't see foreign interference. Actually, it turns out Russia (laughs) just thought because the elections were under the microscope, they wouldn't even bother interfering with the elections at the end of the day. And they would use it as a decoy to go then hack into our federal systems. And that's the attack called SolarWinds that we're still unwinding right now on various federal agencies. But, you know, they didn't do it out of the goodness of their own heart. They didn't not interfere because it's not feasible it's entirely feasible. And so I worry after 2020 that people are so set in their ways now that they're like, this was the most secure election ever. We don't have to devote more resources to election security. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We have such a long way to go on election security. You're constantly seeing some states experiment with internet voting. And I have to say, sometimes I even empathize with the experiment because you want to get people to vote you want to help people with disabilities vote and the internet can make that easier but it is such a mistake (laughs) we just we can't afford it because it would just make you know these foreign interests ability to hack our elections that much easier you know and i have to say it's going into 2020 it wasn't even russia anymore we were paying such close attention to or we thought we were to what fancy bear and cozy bear were doing but i really worried about the saudis and the emiratis you know i had this guy say to me at a conference who worked for the emiratis a lawyer he said you don't just think they're going to let their night walk out into the darkness do you and he was wor- <laughs> he was referring to jared kushner you know they had their own interests for potentially keeping the trump family in office i should say so you know i worry about well, where are we not looking and it is easy to pull off that kind of digital disenfranchisement. And unfortunately, there was a situation in 2016 that looked like it could have been some kind of interference in Durham County, North Carolina, where people couldn't check in. There was something wrong with the check-in systems. One of the companies that provided check-in systems, we learned later from Reality Winner, the NSA whistleblower, had been fished by Russia. We don't know the extent of that hack. But you know, all of the dots were there. And when DHS tried to go to Durham County in North Carolina to say, let us do a forensic analysis of your systems to see if there really was Russian interference there, they said, you know, over our dead body. And it took three years before they finally handed them over to DHS and they found out that, no, there wasn't interference. It was due to some, you know, IT glitch.
0: Well, because on a good election day, these things happen.
1: Right. And now we know they can be used, you know, just the usual glitches can be used for misinformation, disinformation and planting seeds that the election was stolen. And and there's a name for that. They call it a perception hack. And that is what we almost saw happen in 2020.
0: Well, I think we're still seeing it. I think the perception hack is an ongoing effort. If you look back at the 2020 campaign, the stated Trump campaign strategy was, It must be a low turnout election. It's got to be as low a turnout election as it can be because they knew they couldn't win a high turnout election, which meant they had to convince as many people as they could that the system was, in fact, rigged, that you couldn't trust it and it wasn't worth participating. So what else are we missing out there? What can the individual listener who's sitting out there, is it hold tight? I wish I had better news for you. Go full prepper and dig the shelter in your backyard and stock up on canned food. What can the individual American do?
1: So, you're not going to protect everything and you're going to get hacked. And that is a guarantee at some point, something will happen. So, you shouldn't spend your life, you know, living under a tinfoil hat, you know, never leaving your house because, you know, you only live once. But what you can do is you can just back up and say, okay, what is the thing that I need to protect better than anything else? And for me as a journalist, it's my sources. So, when I have you know, a sensitive conversation with an anonymous source or something, I usually will do it offline. And sometimes I've gone to such extreme measures as, you know, I won't drive to meet the person. I won't even take an Uber. You know, I might get dropped off.
0: Right. Because all those are just filled with tracking devices.
1: Yes. I don't bring my devices. I bring pen and paper. You know, I have situations where I'll meet someone on the same day at the same place every month and then, you know, we'll switch it up every quarter. At least I did that before the pandemic. You know, those are the links I will go to protect really sensitive sources. With the rest of my life, I just do the best I can. You know, I don't have an Alexa. I don't have a Google Home because I just think of them as listening devices.
0: Sure. They're 24-hour microphones, as is your phone.
1: Yeah. And, you know, When I tell my husband something really sensitive, he thinks I'm ridiculous, but I will go bury my, you know, turn it off, bury it under the couch cushions and then take him outside like the scene in the firm. Stay in the backyard. (laughs) Yes, like that, I do that. We've even had situations where I'll say, you know, turn off your phone and meet me at the bottom of the pool in 20 minutes. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes I, you know, go to great lengths, but for the most part, the best thing you can do is turn on two-factor authentication on all your accounts. You know, you can definitely do it with your bank account. Your email account is probably the most important and your social media accounts. And then, you know, use a password manager. That's going to be good enough for most Americans. I am hyper suspicious and paranoid, so I don't actually use a password manager. I use pen and paper. And I write it all down because I feel like the risk of someone breaking into my backyard shed where I am right now, is much higher than someone hacking a password manager and getting my passwords.
0: And then you burn it in the ashtray.
1: Yes, right. But for the most part, just turn on two-factor authentication, use a password manager, and you're going to cut out about 80% of the threats you face. Oh, also one more. Don't click on links or attachments in your emails. Don't click on phishing links or through your text. And if you do that, you'll be better off than 80% of Americans. And it's a little bit like the mindset of, don't have the nicest house on the street. Like, you just want to be a little bit more secure or a little less tempting a target than your neighbor. Um, Right, you just have to
0: create (laughs) enough friction for them to say, this person's not worth it, let's go on to the next one.
1: Right, and if you are, you know, if you work in government or you're a reporter or you're a dissident or you're a human rights activist who speaks out about Saudis or China, then you have to go to greater lengths. But for the most part, I like to make it easy for people and say, Just do these three things and you'll be so much better off. And unfortunately, like people take it to absurd levels and I'll have friends that call me from some rental car and say, how do I make sure the rental car can't access my Bluetooth And it's like, just turn your Bluetooth off. Right. (laughs)
0: Or don't turn the radio on.
1: (laughs) Right. Or just erase it after you've listened to your Spotify. But, you know, I will tell you, you know, just as an example of how hard it is for your average spy these days, you know after she and Obama made that agreement that China would cease intellectual property theft, I said, you know, we had this big dip in attacks on American companies. But we continued to see Chinese attacks on companies that included Equifax, Marriott, and a lot of hospitality and airlines. And, you know, you might say, well, wait a minute, we just made this agreement that they wouldn't hack American companies. Those targets were considered fair game. Because the Chinese are building out this massive database of our personal data that they got from the OPM breach and Equifax and of travel records. And then they can easily cross that with big data analytical tools with the travels of Chinese citizens. And then they can root out potential Chinese spies. And so, you know, you can only control so much of your life. You're not going to be able to control what Marriott does with your data or what an airline does with your data because they have to get your passport and all that stuff. And so you have to think about that if you're a spy, but for the average American, you don't really need to think about that.
0: I think that's right. It's just making it just hard enough so that the guy sitting at the computer in Guangzhou or wherever the heck it is says, I'm gonna go on to the next one.
1: Yeah, two-factor authentication and a password manager and not clicking on links and not giving anyone your password. And if you do that, then you're gonna be so much better off than the rest of us.
0: Well, listen, Nicole, this has been fascinating. It scared the hell out of me. I hope you'll come back as we get closer to Election Day 2022 and see what else is going on. But I will say this, that your work reads like a spy novel every time, and it's sitting there on the pages of the New York Times or in your book. Where can our listeners find you online on social media if you are willing to be there?
1: I'm on Twitter just as Nicole Proleroth, although I try not to uh, stay on it as much as I used to. It's Amen.
0: <laughs> Amen to that. Nothing good comes. from Yeah. You. And of course, your byline is regularly in the New York Times, and you can find Nicole's book at hopefully your local bookseller or any place else. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. For everybody out there, of course, you can always find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.